When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, and once more, welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain, and I'm joined once more by Peter Hart at my gaff. Your ass. Morning, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Excellent. And today, Peter, we're continuing, uh, despite requests, the uh, the long-running series on Jutland. And uh, this one's entitled, The Night Action Begins. Ooh, doesn't it end? Ooh, that's a bit of a spoiler, really. <laughs> and uh, what date's that, Gary? It's the 31st of May, 1916, I think. That's perfectly right. Well, well, you haven't st- wished me a happy birthday yet. It was your birthday weeks ago. Oh, yeah, true. Now, what's going on? Well, by 2100, that's nine o'clock, Pete, with the light rapidly fading away, the Battle of Jutland still rested in the balance. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, if you look at what the situation, it's still possible that the high seas fleet could be smashed to buggery uh, during the night. Uh, or come the dawn, it could find itself trapped far from home because the Grand Fleet was directly across, directly across their chosen escape route. Um, on the other hand, what might have happened to the Grand Fleet? Well, that could be hard hit during the night by German destroyer attacks or lose more ships in the frenetic uncertainties of night action. Frenetic uncertainties, Gary. <laughs> or... The High Seas Fleet could evade retribution, slip past the vigilant foe and escape back to port. Yeah, so are you saying we don't know what's going to happen? We're saying absolutely we don't know what's what's. Uh, Everything's happening. still to play for. Two men bore the responsibility of making the command decisions which would decide the outcome. Who are those men? Who are those men? Masked men. Were oh. they? <laughs> well, first one was Admiral Sir John Jellicoe. Uh, well, so he knew he had the high seas fleet effectively trapped to the west of the Grand Fleet, and he had to decide whether to seek, accept, or try and avoid a night action. So there's the three options. Uh, and uh, well, um, given given his personality, well, not only his personality, his stated objective, uh, and his determination to avoid unnecessary risk to Britain's naval superiority. This wasn't, in truth, a very difficult decision, was it? Yeah, he'd already shown earlier in the evening he was going to be careful, especially with regard to destroyers. So he'd prefer not to fight a night action. And this is what Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, who's aboard HMS Iron Duke, 4th Battle Squadron, says. In the first place, such a course must have inevitably led to our battle fleet being the object of an attack by a very large destroyer force throughout the night. No senior officer would willingly court such an attack, even if our battleships were equipped with the best searchlights and the best arrangements for the control of the searchlights and the gunfire at night. It was, however, known to me that neither our searchlights nor their control arrangements arrangements were at this time of the best type. The fitting of director firing gear for the guns of the secondary armament of our battleships, a very important factor in firing at night, had only just then begun, although repeatedly applied for. The delay was due to manufacturing and labour difficulties. Those bloody unions. Ah. 
Without, he didn't say that. <laughs> Without these adjuncts, I knew well that the maximum effect of our fire at night could not be obtained and that we could place no dependence on beating off destroyer attacks by gunfire. Therefore, oh, he's turned into Winston Churchill, I noticed there. Therefore, if destroyers got into touch with, our, with the heavy ships, we were bound to suffer serious losses with no corresponding advantage. Our own destroyers were no effective antidote at night, since if they were disposed uh, with this sole object in view, they would certainly be taken for enemy destroyers and be fired at, but fired on by our own ships. The result of night actions between heavy ships must always be very largely a matter of chance, as there is little opportunity for skill on either side. Such an action must be fought at very close range, the decision depending on the course of events in the first few minutes. It is therefore an undesirable procedure on these general grounds. The greater efficiency of German searchlights at the time of the Jutland action and the greater number of torpedo tubes fitted in enemy ships combined with this superiority in destroyers would, I knew, give the German the opportunity of scoring heavily at the commencement of such an action. After deciding to avoid a night action, the next point of decision for Jellicoe was which course to steer. He might not want to seek out and confront the high seas fleet until dawn, but he did not want to prevent them slipping past them. He but he want. did want. <laughs> but he did want to did, prevent did them. Not. He did. He might have done. Did, Maybe. He did want to prevent them slipping past into the east which was, of course, in the direction of their home ports. Now, the Germans had a number of options for escape, so let's let's have a look at them, Pete. Let's look at it on the map that we've helpfully supplied and have got to put up. Now, the first was to sail back to the northeast, pass through the Skagerrak. Skagerrak? Skagerrak. Isn't that a Daisy D? Well, it's around Denmark, isn't that it? Isn't that a Daisy D, Dozy, Mickey, Pinky yeah. and Titch song? Skagerrak. Oh, no, Skagerrak. Well, they were going to sail, sail through the Skagerrak, round Denmark, and back to reach the Baltic and safety. Jellicoe had decided to ignore this possibility, as the length of the journey would mean the sacrifice of any ships with severe hull damage. Uh, yeah, so the Germans would lose ships, they'd just sink on the way, yeah. It would also be impossible to cover this route effectively without abandoning other more likely options. Yeah, so it was a, that was a, an all the eggs in one basket uh, uh, thing. So he did, so the second route. Now that's via Horns Reef. That's to the north of the huge British minefields that almost fill the Heligoland Bight. Uh, this uh, that what what are the advantages you'd think of this one? I mean, you're an expert on the naval warfare and on the ge geography of the north. I'm going to give you a slap. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Uh, well, what it did is it offered Admiral Reinhard Scheer the quickest, most direct route to safety, around 100 miles. But it was also a regular haunt of patrolling British submarines. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the third route, uh, now that's uh, the, the passageway through the minefield. So Germans used on the way out. But, 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 they. how do you find your way to it? When you, you've been sailing there, there, everywhere, and uh, you, 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 you've, you've got all the stresses and imposition of a pre, of a, 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 a fleet action, you're trying to find a bit of sea. Well, your uh, your navigation it only has to be a little bit out with direct uh, direct reckoning or whatever it is, and you're buggered. Another technical term. Yeah. There's a lot of buggery in this episode so far. Now, the fourth route lay via the North Frisian coast, past the mouth of the River Ems, which lay about 180 miles away. And it was this option that Jellicoe considered the most likely, based on Shear's last reported position and course of west-southwest. Now, he believed that his dreadnoughts had the speed to prevent Shear passing in front of him, heading to Ems, and therefore, in accordance with these deliberations, he set a fleet course of south at a speed of 17 knots. Now, but he's a clever chap, and he, he, he's got, he has his mind on the other option, so he decides to station his destroyer flotillas five miles behind the fleet. What, now, why does he do that? Why? Why, Gary? Come on, come on, come on, come on, no time to think. Tell me. 
Well, it's trying to prevent the high seas fleet sneaking astern of the British fleet, heading for the sanctuary of the Horns Reef Channel, or the alternate gap through the Heligoland Bight minefield. So he believes he's getting all... He's written off the first option, but he believes that this, this position covers... One way or another covers the other three options. Yeah. Now... He considered, uh, Jellico that is, that mass torpedo attacks by his destroyer flotillas would soon drive the Germans back off to the west. Great importance has subsequently been attached to the fact that he failed to issue any specific instructions to attack any German ships they encountered, and nor were they informed of the last known location of the high seas fleet. Yeah, but uh, Jellico in turn would contend that it, it was your obvious duty to attack uh, German ships when sighted. Uh, uh, and that they, the destroyers did know that the high seas fleet was to the west. And that's actually all who knew. Well, he himself. It's all, all Jellicoe knew, absolutely. Um, now, again, just to show that this man thinks of things, what else did he do? Uh, to bolster further the barrier to the Horns Reef Channel, at 21.32, he ordered the fast mine layer Abdiel to proceed to lay a further minefield in that area. So... Uh, he's he's got he's done all his deliberating. Think 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 ponder think ponder. Uh, and at twenty one oh one, he orders the battle line to turn by divisions onto a southern southerly course. And then twenty one seventeen, he orders them to get into their close order formation for night cruising. Uh, what's that? Well, each of the three dreadnought squadrons was to form a column separated from each other by a single mile with the sensible intention of staying well within sight of each other to to prevent any tragic cases of mistaken identity. So they're just three big columns uh, with yeah, with eight in each. At 2116, Vice Admiral Sir David uh, Beatty, he gets a signal from Jellicoe telling him that the fleet would be adopting a southerly course. And Beatty, at, at this time, he's 13 miles to the west-southwest. I, I presume you can picture that in your mind. Oh, you? I can, yeah. Uh, of the main fleet body. And, uh, and he decides against closing on the main body. Uh, why? Well, once more, for fear of some disastrous night. Yeah, mixer. ships turning up out of the night and uh, being fired at. Yeah, uh, there, there is a slightly amusing thing to this, because where was Beatty in relation to the German fleet? Uh, he was leading the uh, German <laughs> battle line, although neither side was aware of that. Yeah, so he wasn't leading as in just ahead, but it, it was a, th- a couple of miles ahead. I, I don't know how many miles, but he was he was ahead of them. So they were a bit boxed in, aren't they? Um now, so who was the other man who's decided things? Well, even before Jellicoe's ordered his dispositions, Shear had also reached a momentous decision, and he decided on his escape route. There's no doubt that, uh, well, uh, to give him his full name, Admiral Reinhard Scheer, uh, is, is, his situation is pretty desperate, isn't it? At some point, he has to get to the east of the Grand Fleet. And uh, his, his, his subsequent post-war accounts, uh, well, uh, post-battle, post are uh, uh, full of uh, posturing, I would describe it as, as to how he wanted to retain the option to resume battle next day. But there's no doubt in anybody's mind that that, that was the last thing on his mind. Uh, and this is what uh, he, he says, and, uh, and you're going to be Admiral Reinhard Scheer, who is safely aboard the SMS Friedrich de Grossa. It might safely be expected that in the twilight the enemy would endeavour by attacking with strong forces and during the night with destroyers to force us over to the west in order to open battle with us when it was light. He was strong enough to do it. If we could succeed in warding off the enemy's encircling movement and could be the first to reach Horn's Reef, then the liberty of decision for the next morning was assured to us. In order to make this possible, all flotillas were ordered to be ready to attack at night, even though there was a danger when day broke of their not being able to take part in the new battle that was expected. The main fleet, in close formation, was to make for Horn's Reef by the shortest route, and defying all enemy attacks, keep on that course. So he's gone for the second option, the shortest one, the Horn's Reef one. Uh, mainly, I think, because it was the shortest one, and because um, he had ships that wouldn't make any longer. And Horn's Reef is very much easier to say than the other one. Yes, yes, that's probably what was in his mind as well. Yeah. You mean Skagerrak? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, there was to be no diversion. Uh, 
The only real chance of survival was to press on regardless. Speed was of the essence both to capitalise on the natural surprise of night encounters, but also to prevent the British having any time to react effectively to what was going on around them. Yeah, I think this is a bold decision, and and in keeping with what he'd done throughout. uh, He was risking everything, but at least he had a clear goal in mind. And uh, and you could forget the blustering. Uh, escape was his only priority. Uh, now, how does he reorganise his battle line? Uh, well, the Westfalen leading the first battle squadron was in the van, followed by the third battle squadron, uh, with the more vulnerable pre-dreadnoughts of the second battle squadron behind them. So that's the order of them. The second scouting group is going to act as a cruiser screen ahead with the fourth starboard, uh, fourth scouting group on the starboard wing. Ah, that's the right end side, Ibra. Um, German destroyers were split up and assigned to search for uh, their prospective prey all across, that's the Grand Fleet, all across the various segments of the battlefield. Uh, what does he order the battlecruisers to do? Well, he orders them to take up station at the rear of the line. Why at the rear? Uh, I have no idea. Because they were in a bad way, weren't they, by that way. stage? That's it, Gary. You, as you've intuitively grasped the thing. And now you're going to be our favourite. Oh, Commander Jörg von Haas of the SMS Derflinger. A stubborn struggle was waged against fire and water. Although as far as possible everything inflammable had been taken out of the ship, the fire continued to spread, fed principally by linoleum, the wooden deck, clothing and oil paints. About nine o'clock we had practically mastered the flames, the only smouldering in a few isolated uh, the fire only smouldering in a few isolated places. The Caesar and Dora turrets were still smoking and giving out clouds of thick yellow gas from time to time, but this gradually ceased after the ammunition, ch- ammunition chambers had been flooded. No one could ever have believed that a ship could endure so much heavy fire. Yeah, tough ships, aren't they? And uh, uh, although the fires are under control, she's, she's in no real state for any sort of night action should they have encountered destroyers or in fact anybody and uh, and Jorg von Haas goes on to say this only the Derflinger and the von der Tan took station in the rear of the line we certainly did not feel very well suited to this station our starboard was our best side for it still had all six 15 centimeter guns intact but one single searchlight was hardly enough on the port side, only two 15cm guns were still in action. We should therefore have to urge the English destroyers to confine their attacks as far as possible to the starboard side. There, we were still capable of administering a cold douche. Yeah. Yeah, he's quite funny. He does have quite a good sense of humour, doesn't oh, he? he's a good bloke. Uh, but now, the, the course uh, set by Shear means that that the the high seas fleet are essentially on a collision course with the Grand Fleet. Uh, uh, the, the Grand Fleet is steering south, uh, uh, and they've got to they 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 gradually it, they're, they're coming across them. So there's a sort of it, it becomes a, a V becomes an X if you understand what I mean. So yeah, uh, and uh, they, they've got this hundred miles of perilous water before the Germans can reach the Horns Reef Channel. Uh, and 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 the the question is, what would happen when they cross the the tr- the, the path of the Grand Fleet? Uh, and exactly who's going to be waiting for them? Is it going to be the battle? Because the Germans don't know. Is it going to be the dreadnoughts? Is it going to be the battle cruisers? Or is it going to be destroyers and light forces? Well, the die was cast. <gasps> Gary, as the German fleet swung round to their new course. The natural result was that they started to gradually part company with Beatty and his battle cruisers, yeah, well, who were directly ahead of them, but still persisting on a southerly course. For the battle cruisers, their targ had ended, although of course they were not yet aware of that. Now um, they'd been in a lot of intense fighting, the battle cruisers, uh, and so they they begin the grisly task of collecting up the the, the rest of the wounded. Uh, unhindered, they can do it and. And uh, wandering about the ships must have been dreadful. And they've got some bizarre and horrible sights. And, and uh, as you know, uh, we, we, we may be looking for, uh, for, for things, but there's, there's horror mi- mi- mingled with humour, isn't there? And this is leading seaman Alec Tempest, 
who was aboard... What a great name. I wish I was called Alec Tempest. Uh, he was aboard HMS Lion uh, of the first battlecruiser squadron. He says this, Passing through this Stoker's mess tech, first aid parties were bringing wounded soul Stokers up from the engine room. One of them had his leg blown off of the knee. He was yelling his head off, Where's my bloody leg? Where's me bloody leg? Repeatedly. The leg was eventually recovered and it was found to have the Stoker's roll of banknotes tucked into his sock. The money was obviously of more importance than the loss of his leg. Fantastic. I do like that story. But on the other hand, the guy's lost his leg. And actually, story doesn't matter. He could well have died of shock that same night. Now, the Grand Fleet had some problems in taking up their designated night cruising stations. Mostly, this was caused by the damage afflicted on the Marlborough by the successful torpedo strike against her, which reduced her speed to 17 knots. Yeah, uh, and, and so the, she was part of 6th Division. That, that's the first battle squadron. So they keep stationed with her. The four dreadnoughts of 6th uh, Division drop back. Uh, they're eventually four miles behind the main body of the fleet, remember, which is in three columns. And... Somebody else takes station with them. Who? Well, the 5th Battle Squadron, they also took up a station in the gap between the main formation and the 6th Division. Acting as a sort of link then, yeah. Then the 4th Light Cruiser Squadron screened ahead of the Grand Fleet. You've got the 2nd Light Cruiser's uh, Squadron cruise blah, 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 to the west. So everything's ready, and at 2127, the destroyer flotillas began their move to their allotted stations at the rear of the Grand Fleet. Now, what state are these destroyer flotillas in would well, you say Gary a number of them had not yet been in action during the day and, and were thus as ready as they would ever be to face the challenges of the night ahead unfortunately the British destroyers had not been trained in the different skills and procedures essential for effective night fighting yeah so let, this is important so before we get on to the night fight we need to talk about this Gary uh, the policy of the Royal Navy whenever possible was to avoid the risks and imponderables of night action and and had they adopt how how had they that's that's a policy and do you know what I don't actually argue with that what do I argue with well they consequently adopted a head in the sand approach to it Jellico who you know we've mentioned this well, the great trainer had an unfortunate blind spot when it came to night fighting and had lamentably failed to make any proper preparations throughout the Grand Fleet. Yep, so it, they, they had unstable low-level shuttleless searchlights. They had no star shells. They had rudimentary night identification signals. And there was an all-pervasive confusion over the importance of the, the, the dual defensive and attacking roles that destroyers might have uh, in a night action. And, and this is all a recipe for confusion. Um, but the Germans were much better off. Why were the Germans better off? Well, they too were wary of the problems posed by a fleet night action, but in their situation as the weaker naval power, it had been recognised as imperative to make the most of any opportunities that might occur under cover of darkness. Very sensible, I would say. Well, the first advantage was that they got proper searchlight controls. They they stationed high up. Why, why is it important height with searchlights? Well, it's going to be above the uh, the swirling smoke that's likely to mask any low-level positions. Now, there's something even more important about their searchlights, and that is that they had proper uh, shutters, uh, Irish shutters, they were called. But but what what does that mean? Why why is that important? You you're technical minded. Why? Well, it means that the searchlight can warm up to full power behind the shutters before being opened up at a full blaze onto their targets, and they could also be switched off and covered in a moment should the situation require it. It's instantaneous, isn't it? Closed, bang, yeah. light gone. Oh, as the British have to warm up. And, and it, it's like a lot of the, the lights have to warm up so they don't come on at full beam. Interesting that. The Germans had another advantage. We mentioned star shells. Yeah, right? they successfully introduced them, which had the great advantage of simultaneously illuminating and dazzling their target at a distance without revealing their source to the, en to the enemy. Now, the Germans hadn't got direct control of their secondary batteries. That's the uh, 5.9 or, in British case, six-inch guns on the German dreadnoughts. Well, uh, neither but, side had, had they? Yeah, but, uh, but the Germans had done something about night firing with their secondary batteries. What was that? Well, through night practice, they'd achieved a far higher ability to concentrate their fire effectively onto any target that suddenly revealed itself before them. 
Practice, practice. Now, the next bit's really interesting and stupid. Uh, they seem to have... Uh, the British recognition uh, singles, signals we'd said were simple. Uh, there was another disadvantage to them. What was that? Um, yeah, the Germans seem to have known at least part of the British night recognition signal. This has often been attributed to a startling lack of common sense displayed by the signal team aboard HMS Lion. At 21.32, they signalled to the Princess Royal by flashing lamp, asking for a reminder of the night recognition signal. Please give me challenge and reply now in force as they have been lost. Now, unknown to them, there were some German light crews, because remember, they're quite close to the German fleet. Some of the German light cruisers saw this and intercepted at least part of the, those signals uh, in res uh, got the response. Uh, now, this is not necessarily crucial in one way. It's more a sign of how stupid they were, because the signal was so simple that actually the Germans could work it out and pass it between them pretty simply anyway. Uh, but but it, it, it's just another sign of how shit the British were. The Royal Navy was at night fighting. And while we, let's have a think about that for a moment, Gary. A little break while we think about that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Overall, the German system of recognition signals was far superior as it involved a more complicated sequence of coloured lights that could not easily be replicated. Yeah, if you haven't got the coloured lights ready, you can't do it, can you? Um, now, uh, it's perhaps fortunate for Jellica. There is a bit of good news for the British uh, in this, and what's that? Well, Shears destroyers proved almost totally ineffective in their task of hunting down and destroying the Grand Fleet at all. Yeah, it's, it's dark. That's always a surprise Inky to me. Inky darkness, I think, is how it's described. Yeah. They had no precise bearings or, or sightings on which to base any search. And the, and the German destroyers just couldn't find them. They can't find them. Where are they? No, yeah. the dark night was by no means silent. Was it uphill? No, yes. No one knew what was happening with any degree of certainty. And all were aware that once a shell or torpedo had been dispatched at a target, it couldn't be recalled if the target proved to be... Friendly. Yeah, if you fire a torpedo, you can't go, ah, oh no, it's the war spite. Bring it back. <laughs> and at the short ranges of night action, the risks of opening fire in haste and repenting at leisure were evenly balanced against the rewards for getting one's retaliation in first. You always get your retaliation in first. I've noticed that. Yeah, a couple of well-directed salvos or a torpedo. It can finish a night action before it's bloody begun, couldn't it? Yeah, but it's uh, it was so easy to make a mistake. 
it, it, I'm not saying anything. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Smothered by a blanket. I wish you were smothered by a blanket. Smothered by a blanket of uncertainty and fear, both fleets edged awkwardly into the night. Oh. Moving like wraiths through the dark. The British destroyer flotillas took up their position five miles behind the main body of the Grand Fleet. Now, as they did so, you've got to imagine the, gra- the, the high seas fleet is moving towards them, diagonally towards them, and eventually they'll cross their path. Uh, their course, Gary, what's their course? Come on, tell me. Uh, south, south, east, three quarters east. Do you know what that means? Uh, that way. <laughs> And I can see what he's just... I pointed in exactly the right direction. Exactly the right direction. Now, even before the... Towards the first ground. Yes. Even before the destroyers had completed their reverse turn back onto their southerly course behind the Grand Fleet, there were small-scale clashes as elements of the respective probing destroyer and light cruiser shields bumped into each other. Well, at first, the British barely noticed they're under attack, uh, or well, under threat. Uh, Then the the trouble really starts. At 9.50, the fourth destroyer flotilla, that's actually in the act of reversing course. So basically, they they sail one way and then go back to get onto that southerly course behind the main fleet, the Grand Fleet. Now, as they swing swing round, the Garland, that's the fourth in the line, sights four German destroyers. Uh, Now, uh, so, so, so what happens? The German destroyers were cautious as they thought the murky shapes could be their own second flotilla. They hoisted their designated recognition signals, but as they got no response, without further hesitation, fired a torpedo each and turned away. Now, the Garland seems to have been the only one of the fourth flotilla that, that was aware of the threat, and she briefly opens fire, and at a little effect, before turning away. The German torpedoes were sighted but successfully evaded by both the Garland and the Fortune. So another destroyer, the Fortune, in that line sights them. Now, there's a similar clap. This is, I mean, that might make very little sense to people, but it's just showing the confusion, how different ships in a line see things or don't see things. and Sometimes, oh, it's all confusing. There's another similar clash. When's that? That's at uh, 2158, so 958, as the 11th flotilla was moving into her night station at the rear of the Grand Fleet. They were sighted by the Frankfurt and Pilau of the second scouting group at a range of only around 1,000 yards. Now, the two German light cruisers may have mistaken the British destroyers for light cruisers, but in any event, they silently fired a torpedo each and turned back into the dark night without being sighted by the British. Wow. Uh, what happened to the torpedoes? Well, the British were lucky because the torpedoes missed as they turned back onto the southerly course to follow the fleet. So it's only that big change in course that saved them. Now, a few minutes later, another sign. It's going to be a busy night, Gaza. Gaza, yes. At 22.05, so five past ten, they bumped into more of the second scouting group. Once more, the British ships may well have been distracted by the complications of their manoeuvres onto a new course in difficult circumstances. And uh, this is Lieutenant Heinrich Bassenge aboard, uh, aboard SMS Elbing of the, uh, the second uh, scouting group. And he says this. In the dark, we saw in an easterly direction the shadows of English ships, the caster with their 11 flotilla. We showed them English recognition signals, which they acknowledged. As we were sure that it was the enemy, we opened up heavy fire from about 1,000 meters distance. Caster returned fire straight away and turned back. So he's actually making reference to using those English uh, signals. Uh, they, they, they seem to have shown the, the correct first two letters of the British recognition signal. Uh, they got the rest wrong, but they, they got enough right. This is uh, this is uh, this this character is an interesting chap. It's a strange name. Uh, you mean Anon Officer Ted Anon Officer uh, aboard HMS Caster of the Eleventh Flotilla, and this anonymous officer says this: They fired only at us, being apparently unable to see our destroyers, which were painted black. 
We were hit four times. One shell hit the forecastle just under the bridge and bursting inside made a hole about five feet in diameter and the splinters from it wounded a large number of men in the fore ammunition lobby. One shell went right through the fore mess deck and burst outside the disengaged side of the ship. One hit the motor barge bursting in her and setting her on fire. Another shell hit the disengaged side of the forebridge and wiped out everyone in the way of signalmen, messengers, etc., who had gathered there, with the exception of one man. This man had a miraculous escape, the four-inch shell bursting practically between his legs. Crikey, Gary. But all the force of the explosion must have gone in the direction in which the shell was travelling, for it blew a large hole in the deck of the bridge, and through this the man fell. Sorry. He landed on another man who, who had been killed by that same shell, but he himself was practically unhurt. Beside these direct ships, hit direct hits reading ahead there these direct hits the ship was covered with splinter dents from shells which burst on hitting the water short and several men in the midship guns were laid out by them we fired a torpedo at the leading hun and the two after six inch guns which were not being directly fired at were making very good practice at the enemy now um uh, so this is the light cruiser caster and it's worth but the, the, the Germans seem to have aimed at the bridge when they opened fire. Uh, why would they aim at the bridge? Uh, take out the, uh, the, the officers and, and yeah, command, and control. command yeah. and control, yeah. Absolutely. Now, behind the caster, all aggressive instincts amongst the 11th flotilla were strangled by doubt, even when the Elbing and Hamburg switched on their searchlights and opened fire. Mm. Yeah, so most of them do bugger all, uh, although the Marne and the Magic both managed to fire just one torpedo. The rest of the destroyers are just totally bemused. Uh, why are they bemused? Why, Gary? Well, the stabbing, blinding lights, the indistinct shapes, they all conspired to paralyse them. Now, they've been praying to meet these bloody German ships for, for years. So, so, so what, they're just a thousand yards away. Uh, uh, yeah, why, why, why? Well, the, the searchlights themselves provide an ideal target for torpedoes. You mean where, they, they can see where they the searchlights... They can see it, yeah, but... Where they're shining they, from. They embrace any excuse to avoid action. Dazzled and blinded, they were afraid that the caster had made a dreadful error of judgment and was pouring shells into friendly ships. And so they did nothing. Now, Commodore Hawksley, he's on the caster. Uh, Commodore James Hawksley. Uh, and and, and he, he just seems to considered the whole incident as being closed. And this, this is what he said. The flotilla then proceeded south after the battle fleet, my object being to be within reach of the fleet at daybreak should the fleet have found the enemy and a fleet action take place. Now, this is, I mean, he doesn't turn after the Germans. He doesn't, do, he just thinks, oh, well, next day uh, I'll, there'll be a fleet action. I need to keep my uh, powder dry, so to speak. Um Whatever his reason, and you know, we've got to be we've got to be understanding of the confusions of it all. But whatever, he's missed an opportunity here, hasn't he? Yeah. Now Hawksley could not communicate with his destroyer captains. Why not? Why not, Gary? To Why? tell him what was Why happening. Why not? Why not? As the first German salvos had disabled his wireless and signalling lamps, only a vague report was ever sent into Jellico, which omitted any details of the position, course or identification of the German ships that were encountered. So pretty bloody useless. Just a few minutes later, at 22.20, the 2nd Light Cruiser Squadron under Commodore William Goodenough was pursuing a southerly, a southerly course a little to the east of the 11th Flotilla. So further across towards Germany. Having seen the recent 11th Flotilla skirmish, Goodenough was aware that the German ships were in the vicinity. Now, this is quite quite exciting. Lieutenant Harold Burrows, he's at the after-gun control of the Southampton when he sees a line of mystery ships sailing across on, on a slightly converging course. Uh, and this is what Lieutenant Harold Burrows on the Southampton says. We three light cruisers were steaming along, guarding our battle fleet from destroyer attack when we fell in with five German cruisers. It was a very tense moment while we were trying to make out in the dark whether they were friends or foe. Wow. Now, who are these mystery ships? They were the light cruisers, the Stettin, Munchen, Frauenlob, 
Stuttgart and Hamburg, all of the German fourth scouting group, who were closely followed by the Elbing and the Rostock. Now, why, why are they there? Well, the German screen, they're also having troubles. They've not been able to take their correct positions. And both the second scouting group and the fourth scouting group had drifted in error, as in essence, to the port side of the high seas fleet. Uh, now, this is a really dodgy situation because they can't see what's happening. Uh, now, Goodenough's aware he's, it's dangerous. He, he's aware of the perils they're facing. So what does he do? Well, Goodenough brings his ships to the highest state of readiness, guns loaded and trained on the uh, potential targets, uh, torpedo tubes at the ready. On the bridge of the Southampton, he bore the ultimate responsibility for making a decision. Uh, what, what, what information has he got to base that decision on? Well, unfortunately, only minimal information and no really compelling evidence either way. So, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. What, so what, what we've got here is it, it's, uh, it's, it's a game. It, it's, it's, they're, they've got, it's the one who loses their nerve or keeps their nerve. It's a game of nerve is what you're trying to say. The first to break and formally challenge the other would cede the advantage. Because the other would say, oh, their enemy in open fire, wow. As the ships gradually converged in rising tension, it seems that both sides lost their nerve almost simultaneously in an exchange of challenges at about uh, 22... Uh, 35, that's 10.35. It was like a sharp pin burst in a balloon. And this is Lieutenant Stephen King Hall aboard HMS Southampton. We began to challenge. The Germans switched on coloured lights at their four yard arms. A second later, a solitary gun crashed forth from the Dublin, which was next to stern of us. Simultaneously, I saw the shell hit a ship just above the waterline and about... 800 yards away, as I caught a nightmare glimpse of her interior, which has remained photographed on my mind to this day, I said to myself, my God, they're alongside us. At that moment, the Germans switched on their searchlights and we switched on ours. Before uh, I was before I was blinded by the lights in my eyes, I caught sight of a line of light grey ships. Then the gun behind which I was standing answered my shout of fire. Wow. Now, the gun teams of both sides spring into action. Being in such close proximity in an instant, the shells did terrible execution. And you're once more going to tell us what Lieutenant Harold Burrows aboard the Southampton said. Apparently, they made up their minds at the same time as ourselves. For at the same moment that the Commodore orders to open fire, they switched on their searchlights and opened fire on us. The ships astern were unmolested and all five ships concentrated on us. We received a most intense fire which killed or wounded all my gun crews so that we were practically helpless to reply to their fire. Wow. Now, this is almost unprecedented uh, uh, in naval fire for, 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 the, for a modern ship. Uh, and, and there's a real concentration of German fire. They, they're not just firing at the Southampton, they're firing at the Dublin as well. And that makes matters even worse, doesn't it? This is at ranges that are almost like Napoleonic times, uh, it, like, the, like, like the, the, the wooden walls of old England, except now they're bigger guns and wow. And this is once more Lieutenant Stephen King Hall aboard the Southampton. The range was amazingly close. No two groups of, sh of such ships had, had ever fought so close in the history of war. There could be no missing. A gun was fired and a hit obtained. The gun was loaded. It flamed. It roared. It leapt to the rear. It slid to the front. There was another hit. But to load guns, there must be men. Flesh and blood must lift the shells and cordite and open and close the hungry breaches. The flesh and blood cannot stand high explosive. And there was a great deal of high explosive bursting all round. HMS Southampton's upper deck from her after screen to the forebridge. The range was so close that the German shots went high, just high enough to burst on the upper deck and around the after superstructure and bridge. And in a light cruiser, that's where all the flesh and blood has to stand. So in a few, very few seconds, my guns stopped firing, all through lack of flesh and blood. It was a great pity. In fact, the sergeant major, with a burnt face, and myself seemed to be the only bits of flesh and blood left standing. Flesh and blood, eh? The process was by no means one-sided. As she was returning fire, the Southampton even managed to launch a torpedo. It ran true and struck a mortal blow. 
Midshipman Stoltzman was at his station on the upper bridge of the Fraulenlob. And this is Midshipman Stoltzman. I at once switched both available searchlights onto the cruiser opposite us. The guns immediately opened fire. This was followed by such a furious rain of shell, which nearly all hit the after part of the ship, that it looked as if several enemy ships were concentrating their fire on us. A few seconds later, I heard a shout, Fire in the after part of the ship! And then, only a few seconds later, a terrific crash there, with the characteristic tremor of a ship which has been hit by a torpedo. We had been torpedoed. Now, down below, down in the engine rooms, the water rushes in, and, and it, it over, you know, any damage control efforts are just overwhelmed by the, the mass of water. And this is machinist, uh, well, Stoker, whatever, uh, Max, uh, Max Miller? No, Max Muller of the, of the, of the, what ship was he again? SMS Fraulenlob. Fraulenlob. At the same moment, both engines stopped, probably owing to damage in the propeller shafts. The light went out and there was a roar of water pouring in. As I followed the sound to find out where the hole was, the water was already rushing over the floor plates so that it was no longer possible to locate the hole. I went on deck and inquired through the speaking tube to the starboard engine room whether the engine room was still intact. The chief engineer replied, replied We will try to get rid of the water from the port engine room. This took some time, and meanwhile the action was proceeding on the port side with unabated fury. The ship had a heavy list to port. At the same time, the water was rushing over the deck and flooding the port side. Now, meanwhile, Stolt, Midshipman Stoltzman, he's left the upper bridge and, and he moved about, uh, to, the, to the aft. Uh, and uh, this list to port, you can't miss it. He, he didn't miss it. And this is Midshipman Stoltzman aboard SMS Fraulenlob. For the first minute, the ship merely seemed to sink slightly, but after that it went down rapidly. On reaching the afterbridge, I barely had time to fasten on a lifebelt and glance hastily at the havoc in the afterpart of the ship, a shapeless mass of wreckage, cowls and corpses. Before the water reached the deck of the afterbridge, and I threw myself onto a raft which was floating in the angle between the fore and aft bridge and the afterbridge. I found two men who with great difficulty helped me to clear the raft from the fore and aft bridge so as not to be caught in the latter. A few seconds later we saw the ship sink without any internal explosion. Some of our guns continued firing when the gun layers were already standing in the water and the ship was sinking. As the last tremor ran through the vessel, three cheers for His Majesty the Kaiser rang out. Yeah, it's uh, another example of, of the, the bravery shown by the uh, the German uh, German sailors. Uh, the, uh, and uh, and what well, the casualties? Dreadful, I expect. Well, the Frauen Frauenlob took with her to the bottom all but five of her crew of over three hundred and twenty. Oh. Now, uh, so uh, the, the 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 Southampton's been fighting hard, uh, uh, and uh, but uh, she's been peppered from end to end, hasn't she? Uh, yeah, she suffered under the heavy concentration of German fire and received no less than eighteen direct hits. And once more, you're going to relate what Lieutenant Harold Burrows aboard Southampton says. On top of this, the ship was heavily on fire forward, amidships and aft. In the darkness, it was rather an appalling sight, and I think we all made up our minds it was the end. Luckily, we got a torpedo off at the leading ship, which I'm certain it was a Fraulenlob, which sank her. Ha, ha, ha. He doesn't say that. This, I believe, is the reason they retired after three and a half minutes. I personally am very glad they did, for we could not have stood much more. Wow. Now, below decks, the effect was incredible as the shells crashed home time and time again. And at this range, as you've mentioned, very few missed. And this is Stoker Andrew Stewart aboard HMS Southampton. The shell fire was very heavy and some of the shells hitting one side of the ship right through and out the other side. The sick bay was badly damaged. I was standing by a fire main between decks near the big racks. I thought it was a stupid place to stand so I got at the back of the racks and just then a shell came through the ship's side. My six mates were killed by a piece of shrapnel and I was hit in the forehead. 
Wow. Um, now, that, I mean, it's a, an example of someone making a decision for no and just yeah, saving possibly their life. saved his life. Now, boy telegra- telegraphist Arthur Gash was, uh, was uh, he was standing by the main wireless office uh, as the battle began. And uh, this is what he said Yeah, on the Southampton. He says this, It seemed as if all hell was let loose. Shells bursting, projectiles thumping into the ship's side and the coal bunkers. This lasted for about five minutes and stopped as suddenly as it began. Then the wounded casualties began to be brought down. Warner, leading Stoker, was helped into the wireless transmission office. He had his right leg shot off just below the knee and was bleeding badly. I tried to help to stop the bleeding by pressing my weight in a vital spot. Then a sick bay attendant brought a tourniquet and he was removed to the wardroom which was being used as a casualty ward. Then my job was to clear up the blood and mess in the office. Not a nice job at all. Now, Shaken by the sudden loss of the uh, Fraulenlob, the Germans withdrew into the protective cover of the night. As the action ended, the Southampton metaphorically licked her wounds. Remember when Fred used to lick his... Metaphorically again. Now, in just a few short minutes, the Southampton had suffered some 89 casualties, of whom 36 were killed. Yeah, and remember, with naval casualties, uh, they weren't light wounds. A lot of those wounds would be bloody serious wounds. And this is what you're going to be Stoker Andrew Stewart uh, aboard HMS Southampton, what he says. As one young boy lay dead, Commander Rushton looked at him and said to Goodenough, he's died a glorious death. Admiral Goodenough said, so long as England lives. When I heard that remark, it made me think what it was all about. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the modern mind sometimes sneers at things like that, but that is what it was for these people. That's what it was just... That was what it was. And uh, I think uh, quite quite touching, really. So, the night action has begun, and what's going to happen next, Gary? What's going to happen next? Would the high seas fleet be torn apart by British destroyers? Would the high seas fleet escape into the night? Could the German battlecruisers ever get home? Tune in to the next podcast for the Denouement. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?